I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. This month, as we've faced a global pandemic, we've also seen an historic movement rise up to protest anti-black racism. That movement and COVID-19 are coalescing at the same time for a number of reasons, and public health experts are coming to the forefront to explain why. What they've noticed, looking at data from around the world, is that there are higher rates of COVID-19 infections in racialized neighborhoods. In Toronto, where we produce the dose, the latest neighborhood data includes a correlation with lower incomes. Even before the pandemic, researchers and advocates were drawing attention to a fundamental problem in Canada. Black, Indigenous and racialized people have a harder time accessing health care. So today on The Dose, we're going to dig into this information and answer the question, how does systemic racism predispose people to COVID-19? To tackle that, I'm joined by Dr. Anya Norum, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Lead in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. She's also the president of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario and the host of the podcast, Race, Health, and Happiness. Dr. Norm, welcome to The Dose. Thank you for having me. We know from data around the world that there are higher rates of COVID-19 in neighborhoods where there are higher numbers of racialized people. Why is that? Well, for every country and every context, there will be differences. So I don't presume to state uh, what the absolute factor is uh, internationally, but the most common factor with regards to racialized people being uh, more vulnerable to COVID-19 infection and in, in, as we've seen in the United States, COVID-19 death is actually systemic racism uh, because it's a social determinant of health that drives poor health outcome not just with COVID-19 infection, but uh, overall health. For those who might not know what that means, can you explain? Yes, so the social determinants of health are the conditions with that we live in. Uh, so where we eat, where we sleep, where we play, where we work, it's, it's really the conditions that we live in that determine our health. Uh, so you can think about it as categories like education, um, income, early child development, uh, employment, uh, our social environment, our physical environment. These are all of the factors that have an impact on our health outcomes. So health happens way before we enter the hospital. We go you know, into health care uh, to address those issues. But at baseline, it is our social conditions um, and context that determine our, our uh, health outcome and might predispose us to certain um, health uh, illnesses or diseases. Uh, so, so it's really thinking about all of those factors. It's a bit of a fancy term, but it's the factors that influence our health. So how do living conditions, frontline service industry jobs, and poverty relate to social determinants of health? There are um, 
I can think many ways that I can can break it down, but I probably will just focus in on how racism interacts with all of those different factors such that you you end up with uh, racialized groups being put in, in situations on average where they're more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. So we know that in Canada, poverty is racialized. We know that in Canada, you know, based on work done or research done by the Wellesley Institute uh, here in Toronto, that, for instance, a black person earns 75.6 cents for every dollar a uh, white Canadian earns. Um, and, and these are in situations where they've controlled for immigration, controlled for education, age, and, and nonetheless, an income gap persists even for second generation, and in particular for the black population. The, the bottom line really is that when we're going to think about systemic racism, let me kind of define it. So it's really our systems, our institutions, our policies and work cultures. It's the structure that we have that creates the circumstances for which, can, you know, infections or pandemic like COVID-19 disproportionately affects racialized communities. Uh, our structures and our systems in the way that they were built and maintained are the disease the way people uh, behave or their biases or those types of things people like to talk about when they talk about racism are only the symptom. I want to talk about a phrase, a couple of phrases that, that have been used uh, during the pandemic. Uh, many people have used phrases like we're in this together or we're all in the same boat. And both of them in their own way have emerged as kind of loaded phrases uh, to people who are, come from racialized communities. They are very loaded. And, um, you know, in this, I'm going to quote uh, the president of the Canadian Mental Health Association. She was doing an interview and she said, in the context of COVID-19, she said, you know what, we're all in the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. She was speaking about the inequities that we face. And so we see as a society that COVID-19 has magnified uh, the inequities, the social conditions of seniors, of people in low-income low situations, of racialized and immigrant populations, of Indigenous populations. So these are all communities that have been facing present-day and historical inequities that made them vulnerable. And so we're not all in the same boat. Our experience of this storm of COVID-19 does vary by those different factors. When it comes to issues of racism, in the, even in the United States, when you control for socioeconomic status, you still see poorer outcomes, in particular for African Americans. And I want to first of all emphasize that this is not due to biological differences. So race is not biologically or genetically based. It's a social construct, but it impacts people's lives and the powers that they have to advocate for themselves. So to give you know a, a concrete example, in the UK, the first 10 physicians to die from COVID-19 were black and racialized. So they call it um, black and minority ethnicities. So these are physicians, they have that income, but one of the hypotheses as to why they were more vulnerable to uh, poor outcomes with regards to COVID-19 was they might've had less um, ability or privilege to be able to advocate for appropriate personal protective equipment. The other hypothesis is uh, we talk about predisposing conditions for poor outcomes with COVID-19, like hypertension and diabetes. And it's been shown that these are factors that are not genetically 
creating disparities. It's really about social disparities. And so in the United States, even when you have African-Americans of higher income, they tend to have poor health outcomes compared to their counterparts at the same level of income. So I think it's really important to understand race as an indicator or risk factor for racism and that really the one of the predisposing conditions is not uh, that we should just look at hypertension or diabetes, but that systemic racism is in fact a predisposing condition for poor outcomes, whether that's COVID-19 infection or other uh, health conditions. You were just referring to, to healthcare workers from racialized communities in the UK, uh, the first 10 uh, peop- uh, healthcare workers who, who died came from racialized communities. We've seen this in Canada, haven't we, as well? Yes, we have. And to, to be clear, I mentioned the first 10 physicians to die, just to kind of address the income issue. But when it comes to healthcare providers in general, um, 68% overall was the last uh, statistic that I saw a couple of weeks ago. But 68% of healthcare workers who uh, died of COVID-19 in the UK were uh, Black and racialized. Here in Canada, we know that you know uh, personal for when we're thinking about personal support workers, we can think about the, the races of those people, and they tend to be uh, racialized, and specifically for PSWs, Black and, and uh, Filipino. Let's break some of that down right now. I want to be clear about what I think you're saying. Are you saying that race itself isn't a risk factor for COVID nineteen? I am definitely saying that race is an indicator of racism, as in systemic racism. So the reason why race is not itself uh, a risk factor is because race is a, is a social construct. But in medicine, we often say that race, you know, we think about particular groups and uh, their predisposition to, to disease, and we think of it as race being uh, biologically based. But if you speak to a geneticist, in particular a population geneticist, and also anybody who listened to the news when we mapped the human genome, there's more difference, uh, genetic difference between a particular quote-unquote racial group, a genetic difference, than there is between groups. So in particular, in the um, the black uh, population or those of you know sub-Saharan African descent, there is huge uh, genetic variability. But we classify people based on their phenotype and make assumptions about them. We use phenotype to classify people. And that classification we know was based on, you know, um, faulty science and really was used um, for racist purposes. So it, it was then weaponized and used to uh, justify colonization and slavery because the thinking was that there were certain groups that were subhuman. Uh, and even if you go back to Darwin's work, you can see that he actually says we're not, you know, different subspecies. We're all, you know, the human species. We're not uh, separate groups, genetically separate groups. But in medicine, we teach that. And when you look at the history of it, it was really uh, founded in um, in inaccurate science. But it's very, very, very damaging uh, because then when we see disparities, like with COVID-19, we start to wonder, oh, What's wrong with that population? We start to pathologize populations and say perhaps something is genetically wrong with them. But in fact, it's the social factors. And if we zoom out from you know the topic of racism, which is a tough topic, we can think about other studies that have shown us that uh, you know your postal code matters much more than your genetic code. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, 
unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years, but this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So race itself isn't a risk factor for COVID-19, and yet there are calls for something called race-based data. So first of all, what do they mean by race-based data? In Canada, there was data collected showing that for every two Indigenous children that was put in a in residential school, there was a mortality rate that two out of every three would pass away. So one third survived. Hmm. And when that data came out and it was um, collected by, I believe it was Dr. Peter Bryce, who's a public health physician, when he reported that and said, you know, two thirds of the children are dying in residential schools, instead of society saying, oh my goodness, these schools are killing these children, the rationale was that they were genetically inferior. And so they were more susceptible to tuberculosis. Even when the data came out back then, there was complacency because the assumption was that it was genetically mm-hmm. based. What's behind the push for race-based data right now in the time of COVID-19? So it really is to to identify the patterns of who is most at risk. Um, the push is coming from different directions. So I would say um, for Indigenous communities, there there is not a push for government to collect uh, race-based data for a lot of Indigenous communities. The push is towards uh, having data sovereignty so that they would own and collect and report on their own uh, data because that kind of data has been used against them to stigmatize and pathologize. For a lot of Black communities, the push is to actually start to see these disparities as has been done in the United States and then use it to advocate for system change. I want to follow up on on a point that you briefly touched on. And researchers have noted that there is more of this kind of race-based data coming from the United States. Uh, is it apples and oranges? Uh, you know, can you make the case of why we need Canadian data instead of relying on data from the United States? To be able to take action at this point when it comes to like COVID-19 or, or other issues around mobilizing resources, I don't actually think we need more data. But I do think the collection of uh, race-based and other sociodemographic data and also data on lived experiences of racism, I think that is necessary because as we create interventions or resources to create change, which is what I'm hoping will happen, we need that data to be able to monitor if we're having an impact. I'm pretty sure how you're going to answer this, but there are no quick fixes to this issue, are there? No, I don't think there are any quick fixes. I learned an Indigenous saying, um, you know, if it takes two days to walk into a forest, it takes two days to come out. And so where I talked about our structures and systems, I mean, that was built over a very long period of time. So I understand that not all of this is going to be reversed overnight, but we have to do the important work to address that. Speaking specifically, because my although I spoke about racism broadly, I'll speak for a moment specifically to anti-Black racism, which is very much specific to people of African descent here in North America and linked to our history of slavery in North America, including Canada, uh, and the stereotypes and beliefs uh, about us that really end up uh, depriving people of opportunities, that there is a great pain uh, and intergenerational trauma that exists here in Canada that has gone unnoticed for so long. And I am very 
moved right now by the work that has been done in the United States and the work that has been done here in Canada by groups like Black Lives Matter um, and a number of other advocacy groups and allies to really have us pause and focus on how Black people are treated in this country. I'm wondering what you're seeing today, particularly in your practice and uh, life in Toronto. In my in my everyday, um, most of my my time is in education, and so right now in this context where many young people have seen the the death of George Floyd um, Floyd on TV, in the context of being in social isolation because of COVID nineteen or having to you know go to work and working in healthcare, what I'm seeing is a lot of uh, my colleagues feeling quite traumatized. This whole situation has opened up so many wounds that people kind of hold with them uh, and try not to think about. And so it's really opened it up as far as their own lived experience of anti-Black racism. I think for um, my non-Black colleagues, so certainly for my Indigenous colleagues who you know have communities that experience police violence, uh, systemic racism and, and, you know, the kind of outcomes we talked about, then yes, you know, right now going to work is, is also a different type of painful. And then I think overall for, for everyone, there is this sense of, um, pain. I think a collective pain, but also a collective hope. I think there's an understanding that right now we as a society in Canada, in the United States and internationally, we are writing history. Because COVID-19 showed us all of the inequities in society that we were ignoring. And so this is a time for us to decide how we will go forward as a society to correct those. And so that remains to be seen. But although there is, I think for some, a a feeling of despair and and for some even trauma, there is this, um, this influence of, of hope that uh, that people are starting to to have that I hope really sweeps across uh, at least our country with regards to the potential for change. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I want to ask you what, if any, first steps that can uh, you think might help address the systemic problem of anti-black racism and its disproportionate effects on 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 racialized groups. I think I think the first step from what you've said, is is recognizing that there are people who are traumatized, deeply traumatized by the events of the last, of the last couple of weeks. Yes, yes. I think that is the first step. I think, so I know for, there are many allies who have approached, particularly the black community and said, you know, how can I help? How can I be uh, an ally? And because that video of the, of the death occurred just a couple of weeks ago, and then was shortly followed by the, the the death that was not recorded, but is being investigated here in Toronto um, regarding uh, Regis Karczynski Paquette, who was half black and half an ind- indigenous um, and passed away uh, under the supervision of the police. One of my colleagues described it as it's it's almost as if you're going to a funeral where people are in mourning and you're asking the family of the deceased I feel really uncomfortable. Can you help me to understand what is going on right now? Mm. Can you help me? And it's it's just not the right time to ask necessarily those kind of questions because we are experiencing trauma and mourning. Now, 
I can't speak for everybody, but I would say generally speaking. And so this is a time to kind of sit with some of that discomfort if you don't have lived experience of uh, anti-Black racism or you don't have a lived experience of systemic racism and to just start to to learn about it and and read about it and give some time because I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity for dialogue and learning and solidarity. But right now, a lot of people are in mourning. I can tell you that, uh, you know, I mentioned for my colleagues and the medical students uh, who have lived experience of anti-Black systemic racism, I know some people are really motivated to to be agents of change, but for a lot of uh, my colleagues and students, um, people are not sleeping well, people are not eating, people are really feeling down and, and, you know, showing some symptoms of, I wouldn't say diagnosing them with depression, but certainly low mood. Really, it's it's thinking about it like you are at a funeral and a, com- and a community or a family is in mourning. It's just about taking a step, taking a breath, and then reading about how you can be an ally and help. And then with time, I think then we'll all start to join together, um, which is already happening a little bit, um, starting to come together and, and think about how to move forward. This is a whole other subject, but I'd like to ask you, for doctors like me in the system, what's our role in helping, uh, helping us get through this transition? There are resources available where Black communities have come together to make recommendations on how healthcare can be improved. Because for, for us who love, have lived experience of systemic racism, we've been thinking about these problems for a long time. They're not new problems, and we've been thinking about solutions. So I'll give you know one example of a resource. If you Google uh, Black experiences in healthcare uh, or Black health experiences, either one, you'll find a document that came out um, in April 2nd, April 2nd that was led by the Black Health Alliance and Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, where communities came together and really thought about recommendations for healthcare providers and uh, healthcare institutions on addressing anti-Black racism um, using you know, an anti-oppression lens um, and also thinking about Indigenous cultural safety and broad um, uh, pieces like that. So there are resources as far as you know, educating oneself. And if one is so inclined, then also looking at the United Nations report uh, on the uh, condition of African Canadians that came out in 2017. And then from there, we'll, you know, I think after that, it's, it's learning and taking um, courses on cultural safety and anti-oppression because it's, it, those biases, those behaviors are very much ingrained in the way that we've learned medicine and the way that we practice. So, you know, Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. So let's start to know and let's start to do better. Dr. Anya Norum, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That's Dr. Anya Norum. Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Lead in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. She's also the president of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario and the host of the podcast, Race, Health, and Happiness. Here's my take this week. People who come from racialized communities are more likely to contract COVID-19 and more likely to die of it, not because of genetics, but because of social disparities. The result of that is that they're more likely to live in overcrowded conditions related to poverty and to work in risky frontline jobs. Black, Indigenous, and racialized people have a harder time accessing health care, including family doctors. But we also heard that during the pandemic in the UK, doctors with a higher socioeconomic status were the first to die of COVID-19. That points to the idea that systemic racism really is at the heart of many, if not most, of these disparities. 
Addressing these issues in Canada won't be easy. The first step is to recognize that racism exists here. The second step is to gather race-based data on the coronavirus to help find made-in-Canada solutions. A third step is to acknowledge just how traumatizing it is for people to experience systemic racism. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about the coronavirus, let us know what they are and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC White Coat. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Dose was produced by Arianne Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me with support from Nicole Ireland and digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.